Well, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Brandon Arnold with the Cato Institute. And uh, today we're going to be talking about uh, the various proposals that we've seen to reduce the debt and the deficit. And uh, we didn't know when we planned this. We knew, of course, that the, the deficit commission, the Obama Deficit Commission, would, would release their report early this month. We didn't realize that Congress was going to be trying to fund the entire government for the entire fiscal year uh, in, a, in a couple days flat. But uh, I guess that makes our uh, discussion here that much more salient. Well, we have a, obviously a tremendous amount of information to cover, and we have uh, four speakers, which is a little bit more than we normally have at our Hill briefings. So uh, I'm going to get right to it and introduce our first speaker for this afternoon. Uh, Chris Edwards is the Director of Tax Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. He's a top expert on uh, state and federal tax and budgetary issues. Uh, prior to joining Cato, he uh, worked here on Capitol Hill for the Joint Economic Committee. And previously, he was a, uh, a consultant and manager with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, he's the author of a, of a very good book that was published a couple years ago called Downsizing the Federal Government, uh, which if you don't have a copy on your desk, uh, you can let me know or, or my colleague Kirk Couchman there in the back know, and we'll be happy to get you one. It's a great reference guide, uh, but, but perhaps even more relevant to, to uh, y'all's research would be the Downsizing the uh, Federal Government website, which is just downsizing.org. Uh, that's a Cato project that he works on with, with some of our, uh, our colleagues at Cato, and they provide a uh, department-by-department look at the federal budget, programs that can be cut, um, excuse me, programs that can be cut, consolidated, <coughs> privatized, got a lot of great recommendations when you're dealing with appropriations bills, or just need some good ideas on how to get the federal budget under control. And with that, I'll turn things over to Chris. Thanks a lot, Brandon. Uh, I'm going to be uh, pretty brief. Uh, I'm going to give uh, a, uh, a kind of an overview of the the budget, and then uh, these sort of area experts are going to uh, tell us about entitlements and tax policy and that sort of stuff. I'm going to sort of throw some numbers at you to give you an idea of sort of the deep doo-doo we are in with regard to the federal budget. Um, unless spending is cut, the United States is heading down the road to economic ruin. Uh, there's, there's broad agreement on that. The American public knows that. And, of course, the big message from the last election is, is that people want Washington to end the spending spree. Policymakers should implement an emergency package of across-the-board cuts to domestic programs, defense programs, uh, and entitlement programs. And as Brandon said, I've detailed a lot of the required cuts at our website, downsizinggovernment.org. Uh, my plan, uh, my balanced budget plan, that I, I looked through the whole budget and I sort of went for the lowest hanging fruit, the most damaging programs, and added it all up, and you can balance the budget uh, by 2020 with spending cuts. It's sort of a counter plan to the Obama Fiscal Commission's plan. Uh, I've got bigger spending cuts than the Fiscal Commission. Basically, I cut a trillion dollars from the budget by 2020, which is about a 20% reduction in the size of the federal government by that time, uh, 10 years from now, which should be certainly doable. Uh, that would bring federal spending down to about 18.5% of GDP by 2020, uh, which compares to Obama's, Obama's budget, uh, which is up at around 23.5% of GDP in that year. I mean, at minimum, policymakers need to cut enough in order that federal debt is stabilized so that we avoid a Greek-style debt crisis. Uh, so we need to cut at least 10% out of the budget by 2020 in order to at least stabilize debt as a share of GDP. 
10% out of the budget in order to avert a fiscal crisis seems like a reasonable and modest plan to me. I mean, the basic math is that if you extend all the Bush tax cuts and you extend AMT relief, uh, the economy will recover and federal revenues will rise to about 18.5% of GDP by 2020. Uh, so with, with revenues at 18.5% of GDP by 2020, uh, you need to get the, we need to get the deficit down to about 3% of GDP by 2020 in order to stabilize debt. So 18.5 plus 3 gets you to 21.5% of GDP. That's what we need to get spending uh, down to. Now, uh, you know, interestingly, President Clinton's last couple budgets had spending at about 18% of GDP. So really, what we need to do is is uh, is extend all these uh, tax cuts, revenues rise to 18.5% of GDP, and get spending down to the level under President Clinton the last few years, uh, and we'd not only balance the budget, we'd start running surpluses. The problem is clearly uh, spending in Washington, spending this year is up at 25% of GDP, uh, far above historic norms, uh, and whether we aim for a balanced budget or just to, to, uh, to uh, to make sure debt doesn't uh, keep exploding, we need to cut, start cutting spending. Now, you know, this is not, spending cuts are not just about sort of budget math and deficits. Uh, I think federal spending cuts uh, would be beneficial uh, for all kinds of reasons. Uh, spending cuts would expand individual freedom. They would free up states um, from all this top-down micromanagement from Washington. And it would spur economic growth by transferring resources out of the less efficient government sector into the more productive private sector of the economy. In recent decades, federal programs uh, have expanded into hundreds of areas that used to be traditionally state and local, uh, private, uh, business, or charitable activities. That is sucking the life out of the private sector in the United States, and it's creating a top-down bureaucratic society uh, like they have in, uh, in Europe. Uh, so I think cutting spending, it's not only good for the economy, it would be good for, it would be good for civil liberties by dispersing power uh, out of Washington. Now, a lot of members on Capitol Hill, uh, especially in recent weeks, they've been talking about cutting waste and cutting earmarks, and that's all fine. But I don't think the extent of the fiscal emergency has sunk into a lot of policymakers. We need to not just cut the fat from the federal budget, we need to cut a lot of the meat. If, if these activities that we cut uh, are useful to society, well, then state and local governments can do them, charities can do them, or private businesses uh, can do them. So on, my, uh, on our website, downsizinggovernment.org, we've got cuts to uh, individual and business subsidies, uh, aid to the state, the military, entitlement programs, and we've got all kinds of suggestions for privatizing federal activities. You know, the federal government now has over 2,000 different subsidy programs. That's a doubling of the number of subsidy programs since just the mid-1980s. So it's not just that the size of the government has grown bigger, it's the scope of the federal government has grown much bigger. Uh, as, as I'm sure all of you know, I mean, the federal government, we subsidize farm businesses, retirees, school lunches, uh, rural utilities, housing, public broadcasting, job training, on and on and on and on. Uh, each subsidy program costs money, uh, creates a bureaucracy, and it spawns all these outside lobby groups. Uh, and all these lobby groups, uh, once they're, they're hooked on subsidies, they want more and more and more. So it, the more subsidies we have, the more it spurs people to demand even more of the government. 
And it seems to me, if we, you know, we've, we've, we hook thousands and thousands of businesses and nonprofit groups uh, on subsidies these days, they essentially become tools of the state, which I think is very dangerous. Uh, the more people hooked on subsidies, the more they become tools of the state, which is very dangerous for democracy because they won't stand up against big government when it keeps on expanding because they've essentially been, been bought off. Now, some analysts, some economists, even Nobel Prize winners, are claiming that spending cuts would hurt the economy. Uh, but that idea is based on faulty Keynesian economic theories. In fact, spending cuts would move resources from mismanaged and less efficient government programs to more productive private sector uh, activities, which would increase overall GDP. Let's consider Canada's experiences. Two decades ago, Canada was basically was becoming a basket case. Uh, the Wall Street Journal said it was becoming a banana republic. Um, debt was exploding, uh, government deficit spending was exploding, but Canada turned course and in the mid-90s uh, they started cutting and they, they chopped 10% clean off their budget uh, in just two years, which would be the equivalent in this country of about chopping $400 billion off the budget in just two years. Uh, then they kept spending flat for a number of years, and the result is the Canadian uh, government substantially shrunk as the size of the economy, and, and despite what Keynesians would think, the Canadian economy did not sink into a recession from those government spending cuts. It boomed, and Canada went, went into a 15-year-long uh, economic boom uh, as the government was coming down in size. So, uh, policymakers shouldn't think of spending cuts as sort of a necessary evil uh, to reduce the debt. As you know, there's a lot of commentary often, you know, talks about these spending cuts as being horrible and painful and bad. Uh, they are not. Uh, I think uh, the the big fiscal mess we, we've got in Washington today is a real opportunity to make reforms that would spur growth uh, and would expand uh, freedom. Uh, other countries like Britain and Canada have uh, have done these sort of big cuts. Uh, uh, Dan uh, Mitchell, who's going to be talking uh, next, often jokes about, you know, how Europeans are, are kind of wussies and, you know, uh, they're addicted to their welfare state. Uh, the big question, I think, for, for Dan and for all of us, you know, have we become bigger wussies than the Canadians or the Brits who have managed to cut their government uh, substantially? Uh, well, we're going to find out in coming years. Uh, and with that, I'm going to hand it over to Dan. And next up is, uh, is Dan Mitchell. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, an expert on tax policy. Uh, prior to working at Cato, he actually was a senior economist over at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, we brought him over mostly to play on our softball team, but it uh, turns out he does tax policy work as well, which is an added bonus considering he doesn't do that well on the softball field. Uh, just joking, Dan. You're great. Uh, <laughs> prior, to, uh, prior to Heritage, he worked on Capitol Hill. He actually worked for uh, Senator Bob Packwood as a senior economist and the Senate Finance Committee. With that, I give you Dan Mitchell. Thank you, Brandon. Always uh, thoughtful introductions. Uh, I'm going to talk about uh, two issues. Tax reform in the context of what we've seen from Obama's Fiscal Commission and the Diminishing Revlin Task Force. And then I'm going to augment what Chris was talking about by looking at some real-world examples of uh, spending restraint. On the uh, Fiscal Commission and the Task Force, the tax reform parts of those, uh, we really just want to grade them by what are the principles of good tax policy. Uh, do you have lower tax rates? Do you reduce the tax bias against saving and investment? That's important because under current law, between the capital gains tax, corporate income tax, personal income tax, and death tax, you can tax a single dollar of income four times. 
Actually, if you die before December 31st, only three times because there's no death tax this year. I've been giving that recommendation to Brandon. He hasn't taken me up on it, but there's still time. Uh, also, uh, are you going to reduce distortionary loopholes? Uh, are you going to control the overall tax burden? And are you going to protect America from having a VAT like those wussy Europeans and uh, Canadians? Chris is Canadian, so he was actually bragging about his own country. He's very chauvinistic that way. Uh, but let's go ahead and grade the tax reform plans. Uh, on the left, we have Obama's Fiscal Commission. This was the thing chaired by Erskine Bowles and Alan Simpson. On the right, we have the Domenici Rivlin Task Force. Domenici, for you young people, he was a Republican senator, budget committee chairman uh, for a long time, and Rivlin was uh, the uh, head of office and management and budget uh, under Bill Clinton, as well as head of CBO way back, I think, in the 1970s. On lower tax rates, they both get a good grade. They actually take the current tax rates, and unlike the class warfare approach that Obama Obama's using, they lower marginal tax rates, including the top tax rate on those evil, bad, rich people. Uh, however, on the issue of double taxation, they both move in the wrong direction. So we might have a lower tax rate, but we're being taxed over and over again. In other words, these plans make it worse in terms of the IRS getting more than one bite at the apple. But then we go back in the right direction. They do reduce some of these distortionary loopholes. And what do these loopholes do? Loopholes are a way that the government encourage us, encourages us to make decisions for tax reasons rather than economic reasons. And that, by definition, is going to mean less economic efficiency, less prosperity, less growth. I have no doubt if you put enough special loopholes in the tax system, you could get people to invest in making factories uh, that produce cancer candy bars that taste like onions and pepper. Now that would not be a good thing for the economy. We'd be wasting resources, but you could get people to make really dumb decisions. Matter of fact, ethanol might be a real world example of that. Uh, in terms of controlling the overall tax burden, unfortunately both plans uh, go in the wrong direction. They increase the amount of money being taken from the productive sector of the economy uh, to the government, although we have to keep in mind that the real fiscal burden is government spending, and whether they tax the money out of the private sector or borrow the money out of the private sector, the economic damage occurs because resources are being utilized less efficiently by government. And then in terms of stopping of that, uh, Obama's commission gets a, gets a yes. They get a check mark, and the uh, Dominici Rivlin Task Force uh, gets a check minus because they put in a VAT. And uh, if you look at the evidence, I'm pretty well convinced that you put in a VAT, we might as well close down the Cato Institute, uh, go to Brandon's Beach House, and just party because there's going to be no hope in stopping America from becoming France. And even the Washington Post has a, had a great cartoon on the value-added tax. I don't know if you can read it from back there, but it shows Uncle Sam holding a cauldron that says VAT tax, and it shows Europe, Portugal, and Greece going over the waterfall. And, and he's saying, well, if it's good enough for them, why on earth would we want to copy the fiscal policy of the countries that are going to hell in a handbasket? Uh, of course we don't. Uh, the VAT, in effect, would be unfurling the white flag. Now, the French are experts at unfurling the white flag. We don't want to do that ourselves. I'm sorry, Brandon. Um, now, let's go ahead and talk about the issue, not just of tax reform, but whether tax increases are needed. Because all the Beltway experts, you know, the gray birds, the gray beards who ponder thoughtfully and want to pretend that they're the, the reasonable people, they say, well, we have to have a balanced package. Who's against balance? Uh, but as Chris mentioned, why not simply reduce government to the size it was under Bill Clinton? 
Now, and we're not even talking about reducing government. We're just we're talking about bringing government back down to the share of GDP it was under Bill Clinton, which would still mean a much bigger government than we had under Bill Clinton. But that's really the question we're looking at. Should government grow this fast, or should government grow that fast? And unfortunately, under the Bush-Obama years, because in terms of spending policy, Bush and Obama were basically indistinguishable. Government spending, as Chris mentioned, is up to 25% of GDP. Most of that happened under Bush. And as Chris mentioned, revenues are going to climb up to close to 19% of GDP. And if you look out over the long run, according to the CBO forecast, there'll be over 20% of GDP. So in other words, having a government the size it was under Bill Clinton would have, give us more than enough uh, in terms of having a balanced budget and budget surpluses uh, into the future. And this is actually a chart because I want to get one thing across very clearly. Congress is lying to the American people when you talk about spending cuts when in reality you're talking about, well, instead of having spending grow 8% a year, we're going to have it grow 4% a year. You call that a 4% cut. The American people would call that a 4% increase. And I took the CBO baseline, the, uh, the, the dark blue line that goes upward at the steepest rate, that's the revenue baseline according to CBO with the Bush tax cuts extended and with the AMT held harmless. So we see on the far left, current spending, current revenue, that's the CBO revenue baseline. What do we have to do to balance the budget? Well, if you look at the top green line, you can balance the budget by simply limiting the growth of spending to 2% a year. That's about the rate of inflation. Is it really that unreasonable to go to voters and say, you know what? We want to balance our budget. What should we do? We know revenues are going to grow on average about 7% a year without raising taxes. Why not simply have spending grow less than that? Now the question is, is that reasonable? Because maybe even that's asking too much. Well, let's go ahead and look at four different examples real quickly. Ireland. In 1985, they had a 14.7 billion euro budget. They actually didn't have the euro then, but this is all adjusted for euros. 14.7 euro billion budget in 1985. They had a flat, hard freeze for four years. Uh, the budget was the same size in 1989. What happened? The budget deficit fell from 12.1% of GDP down to 2.7% of GDP. Talk about you know, getting your government debt under control. Ireland did it. What about Canada? Oh, Canada. Chris sometimes breaks into songs, so I had to cut him off there. Uh, 1992 and 1997, their budget went from 374 billion, what is it, loons or something you call it up there? I thought they used to have these like little uh, shells and stuff like that, a very primitive country. But they went from 374 billion to 391 billion over five years. That's an increase but it's an increase of less than 1% a year. Their deficit went from 9.1% of GDP uh, to uh, less than 1%. Actually, they had a surplus of 0.2% of GDP. Canada did it. I mean, Canada. I mean, for heaven's sake, we have to be able to do as well as the Canadians. Let's look at New Zealand, the Kiwis. Uh, 1990 and 1995, the budget actually fell. It wasn't just a hard freeze. They reduced government from 39.3 billion, whatever they have there, to 38.8 billion. They went from a 4.5% of GDP deficit to a 2.8% of GDP surplus. 
the New Zealanders, the Kiwis did it. What about Slovakia? I love Slovakia. They have a flat tax. They have personal retirement accounts. It's sort of a playground for think tank people who believe in freedom. Uh, well, Slovakia uh, had a budget of 11.5 billion euro in 2000. Uh, they grew to 11.8 billion euro in 2003, but that's an increase of just 1.3%, and their deficit went from an unsustainable 8.7% of GDP down to 2% of GDP. So whether we're looking in the uh, Pacific Ocean, whether we're looking on, uh, on the Atlantic, in the middle of Eastern Europe, whether we're looking to the north of us, countries all over the world have done the right thing. Even the United States has done the right thing. What happened the last time Republicans took over Congress? Before they sort of thought that the cesspool of Washington was a hot tub. From 1994 to 1998, government spending grew just 2.9% a year. Now that's more than these other four countries, but if you hold government spending to 2.9% a year and revenues are growing five, six, 7% a year, what happens? You go from a, a, a deficit uh, to a surplus and government spending, that's the key thing, goes from 21% of GDP down to 19.1% of GDP and of course by 2000 and 2001 fiscal years we were down to 18.2% of GDP. In other words, all we have to do if we want to solve our fiscal problems is tell government you can't grow faster than the private economy. I don't know, you know how many of you are literary guys but here's my conclusion. There's something called the Macabre Principle and it actually deals with a personal household and the, the old saying and it I think goes back to you know hundreds of years ago in England is that you know, if your income is 20 pounds a year and you spend 19.6 pounds a year the result is happiness if your income is 20 pounds a year you spend 21 pounds a year the result is misery well that's my rule for government the macabre principle if the private economy is growing this much all we have to do is make sure the government is growing that much. If we do that, in the long run, we're in great shape. Unfortunately, under Bush and Obama, we flipped the lines and government was growing this much and the private economy was growing that much. And sooner or later, if you're on that wrong path, you wind up being France, and then 10 years after that, you wind up being Greece. And at some point, you get to the point of no return. Uh, I actually think Italy and Greece probably are past that point of no return. I don't want that to happen to the United States. Thank you. Sure. First time you've been applauded, right, Dan? Thanks, clapping, Mom. They were clapping for you, Brandon. Oh, clapping for me. Thank you for that. Uh, <laughs> Next up, we have, uh, we have Mike Tanner. He's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's an expert on entitlement policy. In fact, uh, Time Magazine called Tanner uh, one of the architects of the private accounts movement when it comes to Social Security. I think he just missed out on person of the year, maybe next year. <laughs> uh, he's written a number of books. One I'll point out is uh, Leviathan on the Right, uh, which takes a look at the uh, Republican Party's uh, drift from uh, principles of limited government uh, to, uh, to the big spending ways of a couple of years ago, which uh, hopefully are, will be changing in the near future. Um, he helped to launch the project on Social Security choice at the Cato Institute and uh, accordingly Congressional Quarterly named him one of, the nation, one of the nation's five most influential experts on Social Security. With that I'll turn things over to Mike. Uh, I just uh, I have to say I'm probably uh, the perfect person to follow these incurable optimists that you've just uh, been hearing from, uh, because uh, my, my news is probably not nearly, uh, nearly as good. 
Uh, I just have the, have the one slide here, but I think uh, it tells you a great deal. These are actual projections, uh, with the exception of the uh, healthcare spending projection, which we added. These are projections from the Congressional Budget Office of the uh, size of government relative to GDP uh, that we can expect uh, in the future. Uh, if you take a look at this, I think you can tell a few things uh, right off the bat. Number one is that there, whether you're borrowing or taxing, there simply is no way to finance government at the levels that we are going to encounter. When you look at it and you see that come the middle of the century, the federal government alone will consume about 43% of GDP in this country. Almost half of everything that's produced in this country would be consumed by the federal government. And if you add in the traditional 10 to 15 percent that you get, uh, that the state and local governments consume as well, you end up with 60 percent or so of everything that's produced in this country being consumed by government at some level. And from there it actually goes up. Uh, you actually, by the end of the century, you're talking about government consuming uh, over 80% of GDP. Uh, doesn't matter whether or not you're trying to finance that through debt or whether you're trying to pay for it, as we constantly are told, we have to pay for the government uh, out there through tax increases. Uh, you simply cannot finance spending at that level. The second thing that you can see uh, from this is that you have ultimately cannot finance or cannot cut simply the domestic discretionary programs and bring that level of spending down to something that's sustainable. Uh, you'll hear more from, shortly about Chris Preble on, def from, on defense, but what you recalled was during the, uh, during the campaigns and more recently the Republicans have talked about how they want to roll back spending on the domestic discretionary programs not including veterans programs, not including anything that remotely resembles homeland security, not including entitlement programs, uh, and of course not including defense. Uh, they're going to roll everything else back to 2008 levels, which is the level that we were at following the second most profligate president in recent history. Uh, doing that, I want you to know, would make a huge, huge difference uh, in uh, the size of government. We will drop from the 24.3% of GDP that government is consuming today all the way down to 23.6% of GDP. Uh, if we achieve that, uh, there's something that I'm sure will make the Tea Party stand up and cheer. Uh, the simple fact is that you are going to have to be willing to put defense on the table and you're going to have to be willing to deal with the entitlement programs. Now, entitlements, you know, everyone outside of Washington, you know, when they hear entitlement, thinks it's some sort of program that people are entitled to. Uh, here, of course, it's simply a program that's not uh, subject to the annual appropriations. Uh, includes not just the big three that I'm going to talk about, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security, but farm price supports and a whole bunch of other things are, are technically, technically entitlements. But, let's just point out on this chart again that by the middle of the century, those three pro bigger than three entitlements, Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security alone consume more than 18% of GDP. So even if revenues return to the traditional 18% level 
that we would like to see. You end up with a situation by the end of the century, if you don't reform those three programs, where they alone take every penny of federal revenue. That leaves not one cent for any other function of the federal government, whether it's national defense, homeland security, the, you know, any other program that you might like, there wouldn't be a penny left over. Uh, there wouldn't even be money to left over to pay interest on the debt. Uh, and in fact, uh, just if you just took the interest on the debt that's already committed, assuming we didn't, we balance the budget hereafter and we only have to take the interest that we're paying now, you actually end up with about 34% of GDP consumed by the entitlement programs and interest on the debt, which means you could have a 14% of GDP increase uh, in taxation and you still wouldn't be able to fund anything in the federal government except Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. Quite simply, you cannot bring this budget into balance without addressing those programs. You just saw some lines talking about the, the you know, holding government to a 2% growth. That is holding government to a 2% growth, and it includes these entitlements that are rising far faster than 2% a year. You have got to bring these down. And I think that one of the things you saw from the fiscal commissions that are out there uh, is that they tried to address the entitlement programs, but I think ultimately they failed because they were not willing to deal with the structure of these programs. They tried to deal within the current structure of the programs and sort of trim around the edges. And in doing so, I think they showed just how difficult it, it is to really do it. I think that if you want to make substantial changes in these programs, ultimately you are going to have to deal with the structure of these programs not simply try to find more revenue within them or not make the sort of changes around the edge that you're going to get. As far as just bringing in more revenue, I just, I'll throw up one other slide here if I can. Uh, this just shows you the idea. The, 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 we're told frequently that you know, we need to raise the cap on Social Security taxes and we need to tax the rich more and that'll bring in more revenue and then we'll be able to pay for all these things. Uh, just want to point out this one slide here. The, uh, the uh, yellow uh, little bar there that you can barely see, that's the current debt that's on the budget that's about the $13.5 trillion that we traditionally see. The tall blue line there includes the future obligations that are unfunded under Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. These are the, these are the obligations we set in terms of benefits that are set under the current schedule of law minus the revenue that's projected to be brought in by the current tax revenue or tax levels in those programs. Uh, exact amount is debatable, but it's somewhere in the area of around $100 trillion, a little over that, in terms of the total obligations of those programs. Uh, the little red bar there is the entire wealth of everyone in America who earns more than $1 million a year. So if you just went out and confiscated the wealth of every millionaire in America tomorrow, you wouldn't come close to making a dent in the future obligations of these programs. So I think that if, you know, if the Republicans are serious next year about doing some deficit reduction, they are going to have to be willing to follow through and put entitlement reform on the table. And unfortunately, we have not seen this late, of late. Uh, what we did see was during the campaign season, Republicans denouncing the Democrats for daring to make cuts in Medicare. We saw Newt Gingrich 
denounce the fiscal commission for scaring seniors by implying that we wouldn't be able to pay Social Security benefits in the future. We saw even someone who's as strong a budget cutter as Jim DeMent saying that well, all we have to do is get the fraud, waste, and abuse out of these <laughs> programs and we can solve the problems. We can't. <laughs> Frankly, we are going to have to deal with these problems or that's the future we face. Thank you very much. Well, finally, we have uh, Dr. Christopher, Dr. Christopher Preble. He's a director of foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, I think, as, as Mike just said, it's pretty much impossible to talk about serious deficit reduction and bringing our, our uh, debt under control without addressing the, uh, the tremendous amount of money that we spend on, on defense. Uh, Chris has written a number of, of books and publications. One I'll point out is The Power Problem. Uh, this is a great book. It takes a look at, at certainly the cost of, uh, of our current uh, defense budget, uh, but also looks at what our, uh, what our D Department of Defense ought to be doing, our, our force structure, our grand strategy. Uh, so it's a very comprehensive look at, uh, at American military, our, our current military presence and what direction we ought to go. Uh, prior to working at the Cato Institute, uh, Chris uh, taught history at St. Cloud University in Minnesota. Uh, he was also a commissioned officer in the Navy. He served from 1990 to 1993 on the USS Ticonderoga. With that, I'll turn things over to Chris Preble. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks to all of you for uh, making your way through the storm. Um, I'm going to show just a few slides here to try to put our current situation into perspective. And I'm, I want to make three points as I do. One, I think there's an emerging consensus uh, that we must cut spending. And this is the point that Chris and Dan and uh, Mike have all made. But I think my argument is that DOD uh, should also be uh, on the table, should not be exempt. Uh, a second point that I want to make is these cuts are feasible, both politically and strategically, if we refocus our goals, uh, adopt a new strategy. And my argument really is that a strategic shift makes sense on its merits, uh, even uh, in the era of surpluses, which uh, we are far away from. So let me show you the first slide here, which a lot of these charts are ones that you're probably familiar with. This one's derived from data compiled by the International Institute for Strategic Studies. Every year they publish an annual report called the Military Balance. Uh, and I use their data when I'm making comparisons across countries. I think they're the best one. About 48% of total military spending, total global military spending, is spent by the United States. So that's a, that's a pie chart uh, you're likely to see quite often. I'm not the only one that's re reproduced it. Um, this one is, is more mine. I'm using data from the International Institute of Strategic Studies, uh, but I went back to their military balance from 99-2000 and then again in 2010 because I think a statistic that too few Americans appreciate is our per capita national security spending relative to what other countries spend on their militaries. Now I do want to make a quick point about this because if you do the math in your head, if you're really, really sharp, uh, you'll see that the first bar uh, is about 1500 a little bit over $1,500 per person, uh, and, and uh, now in two, 2008, which is the last year we have uh, cross-country comparisons, is about $2,700. Now, I will point out that in order to get an apples-to-apples comparison, 
When I talk about national security spending here, I'm talking certainly about uh, national defense budget authority, but also we have the nuclear weapons in the Department of Energy. Uh, we also have the Department of Homeland Security. After all, other countries don't have a Department of Homeland Security. I like to point out that in most countries, having both a Department of Defense and a Department of Homeland Security would be horribly redundant. But here in the United States, uh, we decide we need both. And also Veterans Affairs, which technically speaking, of course, is not counted as part of uh, DOD budgeting. But the total uh, in 2008, it's a little bit more now, of course, uh, it's about $835 billion. And so that's how you get to a statistic that shows the average American spending $2,700 and the average uh, NATO ally, for example, spending a little bit over uh, $500 per person. So, and the last, the next picture I want to show, this comes straight out of the, the FY 2011 budget, the historical tables. That's a uh, inflation-adjusted statistic showing that total U.S. spending on national defense, this is the national security uh, uh, line item in that table. And you'll note the inflection point is 1998. I get to use my laser pointer about once a year. I understand that David Petraeus is incapable of having a conversation without this, so I just bring mine out once a year. So there's the inflection point, 1998. Um, in, in $2,005, which is when this uh, table is fixed on, that was about $346 billion. Uh, the 2011 number uh, is $644.3 billion. Again, that's in $2,005. If you bring it up to $2,010, this is about $721 billion. That's the official statistics. And remember what I said about counting other things that are not normally counted as part of national defense. So that's where we are. That's how we got here. Okay. So then the last chart that I want to show is compiled by my friend Winslow Wheeler. I think many of you know Winslow. We've worked here on the Hill for many years. And he compiled this data from a few different sources. And I think it's important because when you look at this previous slide, you say, yeah, but a lot of this spending here is the, is the cost of the wars, right? Well, if you look at this, Winslow's actually broken this out. And, and the fascinating thing is the growth of the base budget, okay, the base budget. That's excluding the cost of the wars. And by Winslow's calculations, the the sum total spent over this 10-year period, additional base budget spending, amounts to about $946 billion. Okay? Leave out the wars. An additional, again, inflation adjusted, $946 billion. So I wanted to put those numbers up there. I hardly ever use PowerPoint because uh, I don't work in the Pentagon. Um, and having done that, I want to tell you why the numbers don't really matter. Um, or at least why they shouldn't matter as much as you might think. Because what we spend today and where it goes is less important than why we spend as much as we do. And I think that one of the fair criticisms that uh, Secretary Gates leveled against the various deficit reduction commission plans was that they were math, not strategy. And he's right. He's right. Basically, if you look at the various deficit commission, uh, the deficit reduction commission plans, they really shied away from proposing an alternative strategy. And, and the, the implication is that our military is going to do the same with less. Okay? Well, I don't think that's correct. I don't think that's proper. Uh, the paper that I co-authored with Ben and that we adapted for Chris's downsizing government website um, uh, calls for doing less with less. 
In fact, we state up front that to cut military spending without changing what we ask our military to do would be worse than doing nothing at all. We did that in the 1990s, and I think it's, it's fair to say it was especially unfair to the troops and their families. We gave them more missions and less money. Okay? Fewer people chasing more missions. And that's not what we're proposing here. Uh, instead, we're talking about what we call restraint. We do less with the expectation that other countries do more. Now, this is the part of the discussion I predict that will make some of you squirm in your seats. It usually does. See, because when I hear progressives talk about progressives, the left, whatever, talk about cutting military spending, I always have this sneaking suspicion that what they really intend to do is to take that money from defense and plow it into other government programs, not feed it back to the, to the taxpayers. And so I'm a cranky constitutionalist, so I carry around this thing. It's a great gift, by the way, a great stocking stuffer. And I, you know, I always search in this document for the, the clause that says, provide a subsidy for the growing of corn, or provide a mechanism for ensuring that physicians are fairly compensated for their services. And I, I, it's not in here. I don't find it. But, here's the thing, provide for the common defense. It's in there. It's spelled that funny old English way with a C. It's in there. And this is where conservatives say, aha, see, defense is a core function of government. So you cannot treat it on the same level as other domestic programs, and especially not the same as other domestic discretionary programs. And, and I agree that other government programs are not on par with defense. But then I ask the question, why do other governments not see their obligations the same way? Why is it that the average American, whoops, back, 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 why is that? Why does the average American spend two and a half times what the average French or Brit spends, about five times what the average person in another NATO country spends, about seven and a half times what someone in Japan spends on national security? Why is that? Why? Because the United States does for them what their government should do for them. It's very simple. That's the, that's the plan. Now, one of the guiding principles of our paper and our approach to foreign policy in a long way, I talk about it in my book, is that other governments should treat their obligations like we do, just primary to their, primarily to their citizens. And I have to quote my colleague, my co-author, Ben Friedman, explained this at a recent Cato Forum. He said, we don't need to defend Europe from nothing and Japan, South Korea, and others from dangers they can afford to meet themselves. We committed to defend these nations when they were weaker. They had enemies that we thought threatened us. And now things have changed, and the new deal is that we agree to defend them, and they agree to let us. By paying for their defense, we're effectively subsidizing their generous social welfare programs, which to me means that most Republicans and anyone else who uh, agrees with today are more interested in providing entitlements to Europeans than to Americans. Now, I don't blame our allies for this, just as I don't blame most of you for eating the lunch we just provided you. It's our fault. It's our fault. Okay? Uh, my colleague, Justin Logan, accused Ben of ripping off his idea because Justin said much the same thing on the Glenn Beck show of all places. Chris was on there too and uh, received quite a warm reception. The argument is essentially that the way we use our military has become de facto foreign aid. And you know, foreign aid doesn't work. It creates all these perverse incentives. It builds dependency. And our promise to defend other countries who can and should defend themselves does exactly the same thing. And lo and behold, when we find that we would like to have allies with capabilities and not just liabilities, they have nothing to offer us in places like Afghanistan. We are reaping what we sowed. So, let me return to close to Secretary Gates's criticism 
of the various deficit reduction plans that have included Pentagon spending on, uh, in their plans. If we're going to cut spending, and I think we should, and my colleagues agree, and if defense spending should be on the table, and I think it should, then we need to adopt a different strategy. One that would husband our resources, focus our military on a few core missions, and call on other countries to take responsibility for their own defense, first and foremost, and for the security of the global commons, as it were, uh, that the United States military and U.S. taxpayers have borne essentially alone for several decades. Ben and I set forth a plan that we think does that, that aligns a strategy with a force structure and the costs, which ultimately results in $1.2 trillion in savings over the next 10 years. Now, you can, do, you can dispute the, the programs that we include. We cut the Army and Marine Corps more than we do the Navy and the Air Force, for example. And you can dispute that as well. I encourage the discussion in the Q&A. But I don't think you can fairly accuse us of math, not strategy. Thank you. We managed to cover the entire federal budget, and we still have time for a few questions. Uh, before we get to the, the Q&A, let me just once again briefly plug uh, downsizing.org. It's the website that, that Chris and our other scholars maintain. Provides tons of recommendations on how to cut the budget. Again, I, I mentioned earlier, a department-by-department department look at uh, areas that can be cut, privatized, or otherwise done away with. Uh, it's also got a budget on there that, that Chris put together uh, to bring the, bring the federal budget into balance. It's got a blueprint for that. So a lot of great resources there. Please do check it out when you get back to your offices. And with that, I'll, uh, we'll, we'll go to Q&A. Please try to keep your, uh, your questions brief, and uh, feel free to target them to any of our panelists. And we'll try to get as many of you as we can. We'll start right here. Well, I, I think everything is going to revolve around how aggressive of a budget the House Republicans put forth and uh, whether that then grinds to a halt in the Senate or at the White House. Uh, I, I think they'll do something fairly aggressive and impressive, uh, but uh, only time will tell. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think uh, Paul Ryan, as the head of the House Budget Committee, is going to put together a very uh, aggressive um, uh, plan of reform, and I, I don't, I don't think I agree with Mike. I think, I think Mr. Ryan's going to attack entitlements too. Indeed, I think it's one of his, it's a high, his highest priorities. So, uh, you know, we might not get. I mean, my, my view is is that we're not going to cut spending until we start talking about particular spending cuts. And Republicans continue so far to use these generalities. I mean. Uh, um, new majority leader uh, Boehner, I guess on, uh, was it on uh, 60 Minutes or something a few days ago, you know, when asked about spending cuts, the only one he could identify is cutting uh, congressional offices by 5%. And, you know, we've got to do better than that, guys. We're not going to make these major cuts in things like farm subsidies or housing subsidies unless we start, st start talking 
specifics. And to give you, you know, an example, I mean, um, you know, Ronald Reagan came into office and he didn't sort of pull his spending cuts that he proposed and somewhat successfully got enacted sort of just out of his back pocket. There was wide discussions during the 1970s uh, on some of the cuts that he was able to ram through, like cuts in aid to the states uh, was, was discussed by the GAO and other experts for many years before Reagan, you know, was able to grab onto that and, and push those cuts through. So you got to talk about spending, welfare reform is another example. I mean, there was a decade or more of discussion about reform and welfare before it finally actually, you know, was achieved in 1996. So Republicans have to talk about specific cuts if we ever want to get specific cuts. Let, let me say, I, actually, I, I do think Paul Ryan's going to take on, uh, take on top reform. He's got some very good ideas. If you looked at what he did in the, uh, the Ryan Rivlin proposal on Medicare, uh, I, uh, which, which, which basically uh, cap Medicare spending and uh, allow people to take that money on their own and go into the private insurance market, I think is a terrific idea. Uh, his proposal on the roadmap for uh, Social Security reform, uh, a little bit uh, less than what we would probably do, but I think it's still pretty, pretty dramatic, pretty aggressive. Uh, the question is, well, how much support he's going to get? I did notice that you know only 13 uh, members co-sponsored uh, the roadmap when he when he tried to introduce the, those proposals before. And the other big question is going to be, I, I, I can tell you, if you want to see how aggressive they're going to be next year, let's see what happens with the omnibus. Uh, right now it looks like uh, there's a number of Republicans are going to vote for the omnibus in the Senate. Uh, and, uh, and if they do, that shows they're not really serious about any sort of deficit reduction. Uh, I think all the way in the back there. I'll uh, I'll cut you off. Unfortunately, I haven't done uh, any work into that. I, I know the only the only thing that I've looked at uh, is that it is claimed by some that defense spending has a different stimulative effect than other forms of defense spending, and that would somewhat relate to your question about inflation. But I think there's really a lot of can, that's I a very contentious issue, and I, I'm not convinced that even that is true. Um, you know, some people like to say that. Uh, Defense. Some Republicans like to say that defense spending is like an honorary member of the private sector, and, and I don't really think that's true. I think it's just another form of government spending. It is one that is an essential part of an essential function function of government, uh, but but I don't think uh, you can. I, I'd be I'd be surprised if there was a, a, a significant different inflationary effect from from defense spending relative to other domestic spending. Let me just add something uh, quickly on that. The only way government spending can be inflationary is if it, it's financed by debt and the central bank then monetizes the debt. Of course, you could have inflation with no government debt at all. Inflation is a monetary phenomenon. If the central bank is creating too much money or too, too much liquidity, that can wind up uh, with uh, inflation or with asset bubbles or something like that. But it's, a, it's not government spending that causes it unless the central bank uses deficits as an 
excuse uh, to monetize that debt. That's really more of a problem in the developing world. We tend to do bad monetary policy for Keynesian reasons. But I must say, you know, there's a difference, but it's an interesting question, because there's a difference between general inflation, which Dan was talking about, and, you know, inflation, you know, localized, in particular industries and the like. There's no doubt that government spending on health care causes health care inflation. Government spending on education subsidies causes education uh, uh, inflation, higher tuition rates and the like. So uh, Dan's right that overall general inflation is a monetary phenomena, but and part of the problem with federal government spending on areas like healthcare and education is it causes inflation in those industry areas, which makes it even harder for the private sector, for consumers, to buy market-based, uh, you know, products. So, uh, you know, inflation is a problem with the government. Yes, sir. Um, I'm intrigued with sort of the discussion of banter about optimism versus pessimism, and as a voting. Uh, Tax-paying citizen. I don't know how to be optimistic anymore. And, and I was listening to uh, uh, C-SPAN this morning, or someone from I think the National Journal was reporting on trying on the effort of trying to report um, uh, pork barrel spending and how the government seems to be. You know, I am not rabid in this regard, but seems to be intentionally obscuring what government is spending in these regards. Um, that is, they won't put out in the current spending uh, tax policies, tax plans, what actual pork spending is in place in the appendix in a way that can be reported, in a way that can be looked at through uh, a single spreadsheet or something like that. How can we be optimistic about any of the chance of government reducing spending in the way that we uh, I agree that's a very serious problem, and let me uh, cite. Uh the UK as an example, because you remember I was talking about, you know, the, it's all about these cuts are really nothing but reductions and increases. All this talk about big, savage, draconian budget cuts in the United Kingdom, their budget's increasing 4.2% next year, twice the rate of inflation. Uh, so yeah, governments mislead voters all the time. Information is hard to get, uh, deliberately confusing in order to make it possible for them to cover their tracks and have their cake and eat it too. I would recommend uh, check out the work that Jim Harper has done for Cato, in particular on government transparency. He's, he's done a lot of work on uh, on the, this particular issue, and particularly the, the earmark issue and the spending issue and how it should be posted and where it should be posted. So there's some good work that he's done on this. I'll, I'll give you, you know, so other... Dan mentioned that I grew up in Canada. I'm an immigrant here 20 years ago. And when I left Canada 20 years ago, there was a very much a big government spending, high deficit kind of culture, um, socialistic is what it was. Um, and uh, that has radically changed. And so I think thinking ahead, I, I think members of Congress 10 and 20 years from now are not going to be the same type of people we have now. For one thing, I don't think it's going to be very, the type of person who runs for Congress now and traditionally has loved spending. They want to get into Congress so they can spend, spend, spend. I think 10, 20 years from now, uh, or for the next 10, 20 years, it's going to be less and less fun being in Congress because you're not going to be able to um, spend those goodies around. So I think the culture of the institution has changed, just like it has changed over the last half century. The culture in Canada has changed dramatically. They have a very anti-deficit culture now, all the parties on the left and the right. So 
and, and I think Thatcher really dramatically changed British culture. So I think that probably will happen here. As the crisis gets worse, uh, you're going to get different people in Congress. People will get more serious. Uh, so that's my optimistic spin for you. Another question? Yes, sir. Do you think uh, the tax side of it has to be a part of the mix, especially some of the taxes that people are now starting to look at? And, and, and equating with spending, like the ethanol, which is the tax bill today in the whole, on the House floor, the ethanol tax extension, the energy tax extension, all those things, do they have the also bill with that? I, I think tax loopholes can be just as distortionary and economically damaging as uh, direct government spending programs. Uh, but since my goal is to control the size of government, uh, I want to get rid of those loopholes to finance lower tax rates as part of tax reform. And then I want to deal with the real problem, which is government spending, by simply putting it on a diet. You know, again, private economy grows 5% a year. Make sure uh, nominal government spending grows 2 or 3% a year. Uh, uh, when I look at this idea that, oh, we just all need to sit around the table and come up with a deal, part spending, part revenue, I'm sure you all probably saw that Charlie Brown cartoon strip where Lucy holds the football and tells Charlie Brown, come on, you know, kick it, kick it. And Charlie Brown, no, every time I do that, you pull the ball away and I wind up on my back. And, of course, in the cartoon strip, she seduces Charlie Brown into doing that. Well, that's what these budget deals are, uh, you know. 1990, we traded higher taxes for higher spending. 1982, we traded higher taxes for false promises of lower spending. I mean, just, it never works. Our problem is government spending. Let's just deal with government spending. And then when we get that under control, or as we get that under control, let's make our tax system not so punitive and destructive to our growth. Other questions? All right, well, thank you so much. Oh, we got to sneak one more in there. The baseline I put up was just AMT and uh, and uh, the Bush tax cuts. I don't know how big extenders would be, so maybe uh, I committed a sin and had a little bit of a tax increase built into my baseline, uh, but it would be very, very trivial uh, in terms of you know, what it means for the numbers. Uh, I don't know right offhand what it would imply uh, for, you know, was the current baseline, is it 6% annual spending growth? Uh, I would guess that would, might roughly be what, what we're looking at in the baseline, uh, but I, I don't know right offhand. But if you just go to cbo.gov and pull it out, it's very simple. The, the numbers are all there. And again, the, the, you know, none of this means that it's easy, because as Mike was talking about, you know, if you're going to say total government spending grows 2% a year, that almost surely necessitates that you're going to do something meaningful on Medicare and Medicaid. You can't get there any other way. But I don't want politicians saying, oh, well, we can't cut $3 trillion, therefore we have to raise taxes, when the American people will actually think, oh, they're going to cut $3 trillion. I want the American people to understand that we can balance the budget if we hold spending to 2% growth, and if we want spending to grow faster than that, that means we have to have higher taxes. I think that choice, uh, if the American people understand it correctly, is more likely to lead them to decide that, no, we don't need higher taxes, we just need a little bit of fiscal discipline. And we have those examples of four different countries, five if you include the U.S. in the mid-90s, that have done it. 
You, you mentioned the doc fix, and I just wanted to throw this in because we're having this discussion about the, the, the optimism, pessimism, or the seriousness uh, of addressing spending. Uh, I don't know if you realize what the, the Senate just did on the doc fix. They, in order to keep the, the health care cost bill down, they assumed that there would be a 23% cut in Medicare reimbursement, which no one believes would ever take place. And now they're beginning to slowly repeal that 23% cut. The Senate just postponed it for one year at, the co at a cost of about $16 billion. But don't worry, they paid for it. <laughs> now, how did they pay for it? They paid for it out of subsidies that are going to be included in the 2014 of, of the Obamacare. <laughs> So they're going to spend the money this year and pay for it out of spending cuts and subsidies that are going to occur in 2014. But they're not actually going to reduce the subsidies in 2014. What they're actually saying is that people who are overpaid subsidies in 2014 will be required to pay back part of their overpayment. So people who should never have been subsidized in the first place will be asked to repay part of what they shouldn't have been paid and then that money will then be used to repay the money that they borrowed to spend this year to subsidize the doc fix. And it passed 99 to nothing in the Senate. And then we ask, are they really serious about controlling spending? So I guess we will adjourn on a pessimistic note today. Well done. Thank you very much for joining us.